Hello there, how are you all? Welcome to Defiance. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I've got an interview with Ginger Gorman, an award-winning journalist and the best-selling author of Troll Hunting. After being the victim of online abuse in 2013, Ginger looked into the psychology and real-life consequences of internet trolls. But before we get into the interview, I do need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please do check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having any controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. Find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you are enjoying Defiance and you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. You can leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. You can follow me on social media, at Peter McCormack, and you can share it out with your friends and family. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Hi, Ginger. How are you? Hi. I'm hot. It's hot in Australia at the moment. Yes, it is. Isn't it? I've just been to South America. It's pretty hot there as well. But uh, now, I'm, uh, now I'm in Austin, Texas. So thank you for agreeing to do this. Thank um, you for having I've, me. No, it's great. So let's give a background to why I want to make this show so you can understand where I'm coming from. And then what I want to do is go into your story. And then I just want to dive into the world of trolling. So I have a couple of shows which you're aware of. I have a Bitcoin show and I have this other show. But the Bitcoin show is what I'm known for. And I guess over the two years I've been doing it, I've got a a Twitter following now, which is let's say 74,000, but I've also got a few platforms. I've got Reddit, I've got YouTube and different places I put out content and make comments. And I found myself becoming a troll at times um, and also being trolled. But in the last week, some of the trolling that came at me was, it was quite aggressive, quite full on. And I found myself at a point where I was in a hotel room, I was almost having a mental breakdown. Like it, it all came on a bit strong. So, kind of going through a, a bit of a self reflection, wondering if I've brought it on myself, wondering if my behavior is appropriate, but also wanting to dive into the world of kind of the people who troll back and just get a better understanding of all of it. Okay, so let me ask you a couple of questions first. Yep. What were people saying to you? What was the nature of what they were saying to you? So it's a range of things. Anything from your show sucks and uh, you're crap at your job, which I, that's fine. I'm okay with that. To people saying, kind of mocking some of my tweets for being a bit cringy. And again, I'm okay with that. You know, I can take that. Then to a whole group of people calling me a pedophile and posting across all my channels. And that all happened at the same time. That one felt coordinated. And then there was some stuff that I think was a misunderstanding of or misread of a situation where kind of became council culture, whereby there was a coordinated group of people trying to get one of my sponsors to counsel me by repeating a message that I was pro-censorship and supporting scammers. And I guess the, the two latter ones came at the same time. And 
it was, a, I guess what it was is the volume. You know, I've had, I've been trolled since I started this, but the volume in the space of a week, we're talking hundreds, if not over a thousand messages. And I kind of had this moment, and I even put it out on Twitter, look, I'm taking a break. This is too much. It's affected my mental health, which also got me trolled. And I can see why, you know, sign of weakness, you know, you're a, you're a snowflake. Although that is quite a smart thing to do. And we can talk about tactics later, but uh, there's so many things I want to talk about and what you've just said. But can I ask you another question before I do that, which is, was the trolling that you were getting of the calibre of trolling that you had been doing or was it more extreme? See, that's an interesting question. And and one of the interesting things that comes out of this is when I put the show out, a lot of people are going to hear this that have seen me troll and be trolled back, seen me put out my message saying it's too much, I'm going to have a break and then not really taking a break. And it's going to come with a hell of a lot of judgment. But you know what? I'm, I'm willing to be transparent and, and go through it and take that flack. But no, it's not the same. And I would say the key difference is the quite full-on personal attacks. And don't get me wrong, I've... Yeah, I might have mocked some people in the past. Usually if I've mocked them, they've mocked me first. But the... the So I, what I don't think some of the people who are trolling or understand is they're one person maybe with like 300 followers who are saying something and seeing a, a few other things. But they're not sitting on the receiving end seeing the full weight and volume of what's coming in when it's you know, but, hundreds in a day. I mean, look, this is one of the huge misconceptions about trolling is that we, in fact, look, I mean, I've been investigating and talking to trolls for five years and building these relationships with them. And I'm talking about really extreme trolls that are linked to terrorism and suicide, incitement and murder and other things. We have this idea that it's a guy usually alone in his mum's basement and he's a loser and he doesn't really know what he's doing and he's not bright you know, none of the above. So trolls uh, work in syndicates, in coordinated groups, and some of these are very organised syndicates like outlaw motorcycle gangs and they have presidents and vice presidents and this kind of thing. And it's very much like organised crime. But even when a group of people are attacking someone like you, you know, there will be a Facebook group somewhere or a Reddit thread which will be inciting people to pile onto you so it's still a coordinated attack which is why you get the volume that you're talking about yeah and i'm aware of that so there's a i would say one of the things is say i'm in the community of cryptocurrency community and there are people in there who their entire mo is to be a troll and you know and a lot of it's quite funny and and a lot of it's very useful as well actually yes because yeah it it needs to happen And people get a shock because like, you know, so I am ostensibly, if you want to stereotype me, I am a left-wing feminist. My background is Jewish. Um, I've just separated, but I was in a mixed-race marriage. I am what they call an SJW, the the right-wing trolls, you know, which is a social justice warrior. I mean, I'm a woman. They hate women. They hate white women especially. They hate journalists. So I am their hate match. And, like, if it was a dating app, I would be their perfect hate match. But I don't hate trolling. I actually think trolling in some or a lot of circumstances has a really useful social and political functions. And people get a huge shock when I say that. But I think what we need to understand here and even in the trolling that you're talking about that you've both meted out and received – 
trolling is not one thing. It's a spectrum of behaviours. And so at the one end, you have mild pranks, which are frankly hilarious. Like, you know, the Rick Roll, which a lot of us know about, is the example I always give because so many people know what it is, which is just where it's almost like one of the oldest forms of trolling where someone like Rick Ass, you know, someone clicks on a link and it's Rick Astley's 1987 song, Never Gonna Give You Up. And it's hilarious. I've seen the White House do it, you know, everybody's done it. Rick Astley credits Rick Rowling for reviving his career. And frankly, like, who doesn't want a bit of Rick Astley in the middle of a boring day, you know? And I've I've also seen a lot of trolling in the middle that has really useful political and social functions. And, and you know, one of the trolls I became really good friends with, his name is Meep Sheep, and he talked to me so much through the process of writing my book. Like my actual husband started calling him my troll husband. <laughs> but he's president of a really right-wing um, syndicate called the Gay Niggers Association of America, and they don't prank people. They don't They don't predator troll. They're not trying to hurt anybody. But they prank the media on a big scale. Like they prank Wikipedia, for example, on a big scale. Like right before the US election, they defaced Bill and Hillary Clinton's Wikipedia pages with all this pornography. And look, it was really funny in a way. And it also was making a really important political point about how left Wikipedia is, about who controls information, about whether they wanted the Clintons in control of the country in the future. So it does have a lot of useful functions. The thing that I'm interested in, Peter, though, is none of that really. I mean, I find that interesting as context. What I'm interested in is the extreme end, which I call predator trolling. And what I mean by that is that a person or people in a syndicate are going out to do real life harm to somebody. So this is the distinction in what you're talking about. If someone is just calling you a prick and they're saying your show is shit, I mean, what I would say is that's just their honestly held opinion. Mm -hmm. Fine. That's fair. But if they are trying to take away your sponsors, that's different. That's predator trolling because what they are actually doing then is trying to cause you real life harm. And the economic harm from trolling is absolutely catastrophic. Like one of the things I did in my book, which has never been done anywhere in the world as far as I can tell because I looked for the data. So I'm just going to backtrack a little bit, but I started investigating trolling about end of 2014, beginning of 2015. And once I started writing about it, what happened was streams of people started to write to me and they would be telling me these stories of their destroyed lives, right? So I've lost my job or multiple jobs. I can't get another one. My reputation has been wrecked online. I have PTSD. I have depression. I've been medicated. I've been to court to try and stop the perpetrator. And, you know, I've had to get surveillance systems in my house. I've had to get a bodyguard. Like these costs and harms on and on and on and on, right? And because journalists are looking for patterns in things, once I looked at all of the people that had written to me and I was trying to see like all these different stories of people who had been extreme cyber hate targets, I could see that it was costing so much money. And I was like, okay, if I could have a dollar figure on this, then all the people that say you're a snowflake and to pull your big girl panties up, they would have to shut the fuck up because I would be able to say this is how much money it costs and money talks. So one of the things I did was I 
started ringing all these economists going, you know, help me, I need to get this data. I couldn't find any data anywhere. And, you know, they were like, what's Facebook? Trying to get off the phone as quick as possible. Like, what the hell is this chick talking about? And then there's this one genius economist in Australia. His name is Richard Dennis from the Australian Institute. And he's kind of a visionary. I don't know why I didn't call him first, to be honest with you. And I picked up the phone to him and he was like, oh, my God, this is really important. We're going to help you get the data. So they, I paid for it out of my own money. But they did nationally representative polling for me. And so they polled about 1,000, a bit more than 1,500 Australians, adult Australians. And we found that 44% of adult Australian women had experienced online harassment and 44%, sorry, 44% of adult women and 34% of men. It's 8.8 million Australians. We only have 25 million, right? So it's, it's most, like it's a huge percentage of the population. 1.3 million is, had, extre- has it, had experienced extreme cyber hate, so predator trolling, and the cost was $3.7 billion. So that's only taking into account time off work and health costs. So it's just costing a truckload of money. That's not the court costs or the moving house costs or the security costs or, you know, all these other things that people were telling me. So actually this is costing economies a fortune, like, and I found that amazing because I was like, why is everybody ignoring this if it's actually just not only is it having these huge mental health impacts like you're talking about, like that you wanted to have a breakdown it, or you felt like you are going to have a breakdown, it's actually a money thing. So one of the things I, I said to you earlier, I'm conscious that even making this show, it's going to, the show itself will get trolled and I will get trolled for making this show. And one of the things I've always been is, uh, Ginger, is quite transparent. Like, you know, I've shared in my shows my mistakes. I've talked about the breakup of my marriage. I've talked about being a cocaine addict. I've talked about all those things. And and I'm fine doing that because I think it's helpful sometimes to talk to, talk about these situations. They also get thrown back at me. You know, I get the, this is why your wife left you. Oh, or, you're just you, a junkie kind of thing? Yeah. Why, why, yeah, why don't, why don't you go and uh, take some more cocaine? Or why don't you go and do some crack? Like, I get that all gets thrown back at me. And again... that's still not the worst in itself right but I've obviously listened to your book I read a lot of articles I actually your article was the first one I actually read as well because when I was going through it I I really wanted to understand more about this you know because one of the things I was saying to myself was like do I deserve this have I brought it on myself and I've definitely split people like there are people who don't like my work there's people who don't like me and and I accept that like I do not behave perfectly I definitely wind people up I can be a bit of a shit right what was the real cost to me was when I, I was basically in this hotel in Uruguay. I had an interview booked. I had to cancel the interview. Just I just physically wasn't in the state to do it. And all these messages coming through that were trying to cancel a sponsor, which were based on a misrepresentation, I believe, that was a lot of stress on top of the previous stress of people going, you fat slob, go and fucking kill yourself, like all these messages. And what I, one of the things I think might be useful to get this show is that you know, the the cryptocurrency circles I'm mixing can be quite toxic. And like I say, I don't think some people appreciate the full weight of everything when it comes at somebody because it's like a truck. And I'm not, yeah, you know, people can say is. I'm a, a snowflake and I, I can be sensitive, right? But the full weight of hundreds of messages on YouTube, in email, in DM, it's very hard to just switch off from it. Well, you know, there's this thing that people say, you know, just get offline 
stop looking at the messages. And the more I learned about trolling, the more that enrages me. Like that is just, first of all, bullshit victim blaming. Because the thing is, okay, number one, who the fuck can get off the internet? Nobody. The internet has been recognised by the United Nations Rapporteur as a human right. So we need it. We need it for social Mm -hmm. reasons. We need it for economic reasons. So expecting somebody to get offline because they are being attacked is like peak victim blaming. And it also is a massive misunderstanding about what is actually happening. So there's a brain expert in my book. He's an internet addiction expert. And I actually asked him, like, why when you're receiving all these messages and all this hatred, can you not stop checking it? Because every cyber hate target I've ever spoken to, including myself, like I have been the victim of extreme predator trolling and I remember this right like having my phone in my hand and you can see it's a train wreck you know I can see people calling me a shit journalist and a pedophile enabler and threatening my family and death threats and I still can't stop looking and there is not a victim in my book that could said to me they could stop looking so it's a thing right and what it is is that This is a normal human behavior. It's like if you're at a party and you realize that like 60 people in the corner are saying bad stuff about you and you get this dread in your stomach because it affects your social standing and possibly your job and your family and your position in the community, Mm -hmm. but you still have to know what they are saying. You have to. It's a human uh, condition like it's we have to and also he said there's a feedback loop in your brain and your brain doesn't care whether it's a positive feedback loop or a negative feedback loop it still will stay on that loop so there's your brain is telling you to do it to keep checking and your sort of social conditioning is telling you to do that because you don't want to lose your job you don't want to lose your position in the community so I don't think we should be putting the onus of cyber hate onto the victim. It's actually the perpetrators that need to be brought to account and the platforms and police. You know, we can talk about that all later. But it is belittling and undermining the impact of something like that. Like the people I've interviewed, I mean, apart from, you know, losing hundreds of thousands of dollars and being unemployable and trying to suicide and all these other things – a lot of them have really ongoing PTSD symptoms. They wake up at night covered in sweat. They might have wet the bed. They have nightmares. Like I've had PTSD and I've seen all this stuff. This is what happens from huge cyber cyber hate events like the one that you're talking about. Like if this went on for a few years, that's what would happen to you. You know, you'd become really yeah. mentally unwell because it is a trauma actually. Like if if you're being threatened, your life is being threatened, your kids is being threatened, your um, security, your house, all of that, you know? Well, this is one of the, again, one of the reasons I want to do the show. Like a couple of reasons. Firstly, you know, just to really self-reflect on my own behavior. And it's definitely impacted it a bit, although I'm I'm still trolling myself, you know, I st- and I still consider the troll trolling I do, I don't know, not to be at the predatory personal end, but, but it has, you know, 
when I write a tweet these days, like this last few days, I've, I've thought about it a little bit more, which is good. But I also, I kind of hope some people will listen to it and maybe it will help them consider or reflect on what the impact is to people. But perhaps that's like too much to ask. No, I mean, it. look, since my book came out in February, my book came out six weeks before the Christchurch massacre. And it's really interesting because... I never knew, even though when I started writing the book, I had been talking to trolls for years, I never understood it was like predator trolling was connected to terrorism and incitement to suicide and domestic violence and, you know, all these other kinds of hate crimes. But by the time I finished the book or finished the manuscript, I knew like there's a lot of terrorist trolls in my book. And we had Senate hearings here in Australia into cyberbullying in 2018. And I gave evidence at these Senate hearings and, like I said, this stuff is linked to terrorism. And I just remember this one particular Australian senator looking at me like I had lost my mind, like this chick is bonkers. And I said, you know, these are all the crimes that's linked to in my book. And they reported, they wrote into their final report a lot of the recommendations which myself and other colleagues suggested, but they left that part out. And then my book came out and it was describing in detail basically not the actual Christchurch killer but very, very similar people, very similar criminals, um, similar kind of terrorist attacks and all the context in which someone like him would be radicalised. So the book came out, the massacre happened and then it just went bam. And I literally was getting messages all over the world, people going, oh, my God, have you read this? Have you read this? Are you watching this? This is exactly what's in your book. And I actually went to New Zealand right after the massacre. I was invited over there to speak and I got mobbed by the media there. I just did so many interviews because it was like I was the first person in the world that could actually explain it. And, I mean, I remember just I didn't sleep at all. I remember running down to the local clothes store to buy a new jacket because I was like, I can't wear this freaking spotty TV jacket on TV again. Like, it stinks, you know. Um, it, it Finally, people started connecting the dots. They started taking experiences like the one you're talking about and terrorism and, you know, domestic violence where there's predator trolling and rowing and they started clicking all the pieces together. And I'm like, thank God, I've only been talking about it for five years. I mean, actually, you know, Peter, I cried when the massacre happened because I was like, this is what I was trying to stop. This is what I was trying to write the book because I could see this was going to happen and no one believed me that it was so linked to terrorism. Now they do. You know, so wow. do, you, the, do you know what might be useful? Because a lot of people won't know your backstory, why yeah. you got into this. But it's actually it's fucking mental. Like that story it is a crazy is story. Crazy but story. I, Peter, I do just want to say one thing about oh, yeah. you you being scared of being trolled, speaking out about trolling. The no, it's most, not, no, no, no. I'm not scared. I'm not scared. Or worried. Like, I, I, no, I'm not even worried. I'm, I'm aware. I'm not worried because if I was worried, I wouldn't do it. No, I mean, I was worried writing the book because I know the police don't help you and I was interviewing Wee from the Daily Stormer that has a troll army that hunts people and stuff. Like I knew, I knew that I could get killed writing it. But the thing is I didn't think there was a choice because of all those people that wrote to me and they were saying, you know, nobody is helping. And I was like, 
I actually wrote to the publisher saying, I'm sorry, this is too dangerous. My family's been threatened so much already. Like I can't, I can't write this book. And then I read all those emails and I was like, someone has to do something because nobody's doing anything. But what I was going to say to you about that concern, whatever you want to call it, that thought bubble, is trolls often don't attack you when you're on the front foot talking about trolling because they want you to be weak and alone uh, that's it's like domestic violence or domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. If they can see the target is weak and alone and does not have a backup crew, that's when they go in for the jugular. When you're like me and you're on the front foot and you're like speaking out about it and exploring it, you get a totally different response. Like I have almost not been trolled about the book at all except for D-level trolling and when I get trolled about the book, it's hilarious because I use it to sell the book. So I'll, I'll get like, Clayton says, I'm a lying whore. Am I? Buy my book and find out. And they hate that because I'm like trolling them, you know. Um, anyway, I've got off track now. So, um, Well, let me add, let me add into that because it's not that I'm worried. I'm just aware it's going to happen. But I'm kind of look at these things like, is it net positive and net negative? And I think by doing this and just having the conversation, you know, I think it's a net positive, even if, you know, there will be some morons coming out and saying, oh, look at you, you pussy, or like, look at you, Pete, you snowflake, whatever. I like, I accept that. But I do think it'll be net positive. And one of the reasons I do is that one of the interesting things, and you'll, you'll probably be aware of this, is that despite those messages I got, like the trolling messages... I did get a whole bunch of really positive yeah. stuff that came to me, but it came in emails or private DMs. Yes. Like, it was like private support. And my my best guess is, uh, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is people don't want to expose themselves to the trolls. That's right. But also, I mean, I've just written a really big article for the ABC, which is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. It's got nothing to do with the American ABC. It's very similar to the BBC in the UK. I wrote a big article for them about bystander behaviour and that is one of the most important things you can do is give private support to the target, especially if you're not if you're a public servant and you might lose your job by speaking out publicly or something. Yeah, private support to the target is incredible because really if you're in that situation, you just need to know that people are behind you, they see what's happening, they support you, they support your work. But listen, my prediction, Peter, you can call me in six months and tell me, <laughs> My prediction is the trolling will not be very bad after you post this because you're actually uh, out there talking about it. You're on the front foot and, you know, talking to a trolling expert and you're kind of picking it apart. You're owning your place in it. I mean, also trolls are narcissists. Like they want, you know, for a while there I was like, why do all these guys want to talk to me? You know, I'm their hate match and... Part of why they wanted to talk to me, there's two reasons. One was they feel marginalised and they feel like no one's listening, especially the kind of white supremacists slash outright trolls. They feel they're your classic kind of Trump supporters or Brexit voters. A lot of these people, they just feel on the outer and marginalised economically, socially, the whole thing. And so the fact that someone like me spends five years talking to them, they feel really heard So, like, once I put Signal and other encrypted apps on my phone and I connected with these guys, they never shut up. They were like, ping, 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 ping. And I sometimes have to delete the apps because they just wouldn't be quiet, you know. The other reason that trolls love it when you talk about what they're doing is because it's a culture to them. 
they are part of like if we go back to motorcycle gangs that we have all over the world it's an identity and they're presidents and vice presidents and they work together sometimes they all know each other and they have historical things that are happening in their communities. They have law, L-O-R-E, and they wanted them written down. And this is the same with a podcast like this. Like they want this to be recognised in society as part of the culture. So they're proud of it in a way. So I would be amazed if you get really bad predator trolling after this. Tell me if you do because I'm sure you won't. <laughs> Yeah, but but it also, I mean, even even if it does, I'm I'm not too fussed about it because I'm a, I I, th- I think one of the things is I'm coming out of it a bit more self aware. So one of the other things I did after I read your article and listened to your book and self reflected, I actually went and apologized to a few people as well. Some people I think I'd taken things too far or been a bit of a dick about because I kind of you know you've got to go through that process i mean they might even listen to this and they'll be aware but there's at least five people i've just reached out to and said look i did this i think that was a bit too much and i'm sorry blah 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 and now i i think like you by researching it understanding it you come with the ammo for better self, uh, behavior yourself but also like a better armory for dealing with the trolls so one of the things now like when it comes in rather than replying to each one or trying to rationalize with them or even getting upset by it, i just go well you're a you're a you're probably a sadist uh, narcissist <laughs> uh, psychopath, and I just go right. You're a sadist narcissist psychopath. It's really useful. No... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and one of the things I say to people is, like, psychological armor is a huge thing. Like when it happened to me, I was so sideswiped. Like trolling had been around on really extreme levels of predator trolling I'm talking about since about 2009, particularly in the States, it was well publicised. But in Australia in 2013 when it happened to me, I was completely sideswiped. I didn't even know it was a thing. I'm not really a techie person. I'd never heard of it. So I think what you're saying is hugely valuable. Like now I've got like a buffalo hide on my ass. Like people will be like, I'm going to kill your kids and cut your uterus out. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you might. You probably won't because I know so much about it now. Like I know what to look for if someone is genuinely threatening. I mean I wish women in particular and marginalised people didn't get this kind of abuse and it's, you know, I mean there are lots of cohorts of trolls, right, but the main dudes in my book are white supremacists, outright guys, and they want their – they're young. They're like 18 to 35 – And they want to maintain this place at the top of the food chain. And so they are attacking anyone other. So a lot of times people who are being uh, predator trolled are in these groups, like they're women, they're ethnic minorities, people of colour, LGBTI, people with disabilities, like they're not your average Joe. So, you know, trolls say we're not, you know, anyone can say anything on the internet. We didn't, you know, words can't hurt anyone. And that's just not true. Century. Well, you're meant to be a tough guy. <laughs> you're meant to be able to handle this stuff anyway. Yeah, but I don't think once you've lost your job and your reputation's ruined and you've been driven to suicide or, you know, I mean, the stuff that happens on the internet is far beyond what most people imagine. Like one of the things I talk about is the Daily Stormers troll army basically inciting the riots in Charlottesville where Heather Hoyer died and a whole lot of other people were really badly injured to the point where they will never recover. 
I mean, block and delete is not going to solve that, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know? So we need to stop thinking that the internet is some kind of virtual world and real life is a different world. That's just garbage because if I order my groceries online, they come in real life. That is the same as trolling, you know, or can be. Did you find yourself feeling sorry for the trolls? Because that's, again, going through the research, I've watched like 10 videos on YouTube, read articles in your book. I also kind of came out feeling a little bit sorry for some of the trolls because you start to get into the psychology of them and and the behaviour and you start to think, well, actually, this kind of like, it's kind of sad, actually. Yeah. So, look, Peter, I did something that, most journalists wouldn't. I'm going back quite a long way to explain to you how I got here. I'm not a, I'm not a journalism evangelist. I, for over a decade, have had huge problems with the way that modern journalism is conducted. And it's conducted in this way where you have a false equivalence and you've got to be a goodie or a baddie and everybody's got to be held to account in a certain way. And there's a lot of evidence, like there's evidence, there was a really interesting paper that came out of Cardiff University that found that this kind of false equivalence that the BBC does is actually really damaging to public trust and it's kind of bullshit pretending that you're objective because nobody's objective. And what happens is we say something like climate change, you get every scientist in the world saying it's a thing and then you get Lord Monkton saying it's not. And then because we've got to have balance, we put Lord Monkton in a story with, you know, eminent scientists saying the world is getting warmer. So I don't agree with a lot of the rules of traditional journalism, although I have been a journalist for 20 years. And what I came to, because I most of my work is social justice, so I want to make society fairer and I'm asking these questions and the main one is how do we treat each other? You know, how can society be fairer? And so I often interview victims of trauma and I do not follow any of the journalistic rules, really. I collaborate with them. My main thing is I want to hear them. If they want to change their quotes later, they can hear all their quotes. I don't want them to have any surprises. I want them to be able to talk about the difficult, hard things and get into those dark places of humanity that no one wants to touch, okay? So I've been doing that for a long time before I came to this. And, I mean, I'm a trolling victim, which we'll talk about in a minute, and that really damaged me and my family. But what I came to with the trolls was just like, do we want to know who they are and what motivates them and how to stop this? Or do we want to just be angry and pissed off and say that they're assholes and this will keep going? And when I started writing the book and researching the book, like a couple of really prominent feminists wrote to me and was like, they were like so angry. Like, how can you engage with the perpetrators in this way? Like, why are you giving them a platform? They're narcissists. You're giving them what they want. And I was just like, look, if you want to pull the weed out, you have to pull it out from the roots. Like, and one of them was so mad. She's like, you, they just want power. And I was like, how do you know that? Have you asked them? And so I went in with what I now know is called radical empathy, right? I didn't know it had a name, but basically I wanted to really understand why would you send a death threat to someone that you don't 
no, why would you try to get somebody killed? Who actually are you? And so I connected with a bunch of these guys. I never in a million years thought that they would want to talk to me, but they all wanted to talk to me because they feel like no one's listening. And I mean, look, to be honest, some of it was narcissism. Like Mark, who's in my book, who's a really dangerous troll and does get people killed, you know, he told me it was it was for attention that he was a narcissist and I know that. But I also did a bargain with the devil in a sense. Like I decided, okay, I understand this is giving you a platform. It's feeding into all your narcissism. But the harm that is being done to society is so much greater Like I knew at that point stuff like the Christchurch killings were going to happen and, you know, I knew people were getting killed and shot and it was related to terrorism and stuff and I was just like I'm going to pay the price of giving someone like Mark a platform and go in with radical empathy because I have to. I don't feel like there's a choice. We're not going to solve hatred with hatred. Like my feeling from deep inside my gut was just like, we have to bring our greatest humanity to this and it's not whatever we have been doing. So I went in to talk to them in a way that I have never done with someone who I ostensibly believe is at fault. And, I mean, I've interviewed murderers and things like that before but I I never had brought my whole heart to it. And I paid a price for it. I paid a really big price for it but I also got information and got an understanding that I don't think we'd have any other way. And so, for example, you know, you're talking about feeling sorry for them. Are you mainly talking about that chapter called The Internet Was My Parent? Is that what you were talking about, that chapter? No, not not specifically. It was more broadly. It was more just, like I say, because I've read so much stuff and on top of listening to your, your audio book that, you know, when I was going through the process and learning about you know, what drives a troll, I, I, it just kind of felt quite sad. Yeah, you know, it this, is. This... And so I, there's a chapter in my book, Troll Hunting, called The Internet Was My Parent, right? And that chapter was so profound to me. It was like being hit by a truck a bit. Mm-hmm. I was away on school holidays with my children, visiting my mom at the coast, and she used to have this beautiful property here at the south coast in Australia, and it was in, we were in drought, so there was no rain and mum had the kids because I was trying to finish the final manuscript and it just started to bucket rain and I was staring out the window and it was like each drop was kind of a thought. It's hard to explain. It was a surreal moment and I realised that these guys, all of them had at one point told me the same story about their childhoods And they were not brought up by people. They were brought up by the internet. And so they were describing somewhere between the ages of 10 to 16, being in really neglectful homes, violent homes, lots of drugs, domestic violence, neglect. Like one kid talked about being completely starved. Like his dad, 10 years old, his dad went away on a work job for a week interstate left him alone with no food in the house and he was going to school every day starving and they were alone online and so what those kids were doing completely unparented so no one around to talk to hug kiss explain anything and they 
on the cesspits of the internet, so like 4chan, Reddit, Tumblr, 8chan, N-chan, imbibing all these ideologies like white supremacy, misogyny, uh, lots and lots of racist ideologies, just lots of different kinds of hatred. And I was like, oh, my God, like this is a kind of radicalization, actually. And I don't think you can be amazed that you have these kids that are so alone, so isolated, they become so angry and then they get spat out, you know, a few years later as the Christchurch killer. The Christchurch killer, this is fascinating, like right after he did that massacre at the mosque in New Zealand, I was just waiting and waiting and then his grandmother came out in the press and she was talking about him. I think he spent a lot of time with his grandmother but she at some point said he was a really weird kid, he was always alone on the internet and I was like, of course he was, of course he was. He was radicalised into this stuff and I actually went to this radicalization expert, Dr Clark Jones, in my book and he's a, you know, he's an expert in ISIS and ISIL recruitment and all that and gang behaviour. And this is before all of this happened, like before Christchurch happened. And I was like, Clark, I think this is kind of a radicalization. Is this the same as how ISIS kids get recruited? Like they have these terrible upbringings, they feel lost, they feel isolated, and then they find these cohorts online. And he was like, yeah, Ginger, this is the same. This is exactly the same story. And, like, God, that struck terror into my heart. But, yeah, like, think about that. Like, how old are your kids? How old are your kids right now? 15 and 9. And, again, that's another reason I kind of want to do this as well because I'm fully aware that they are growing up in a time. They don't know a time of no internet. You know, we, we lived at a time without an internet, right? They don't. And I'm fully aware of that. Yeah. So when I think about my daughter, she's nine. And I think about these little boys, like these are our children in our community that are going Mm -hmm. through this. And what I keep saying when I speak about this in public is like, this is a crucial intervention point. Like somebody needs to do a big scale study on this and then work out this intervention point because nobody should be parented by the internet. And, you know, I mean, Meep Sheep, who I've become really good friends with, like he's he still messages me every second day and we talk on Skype and, you know, he's the right-wing president of the GNNA and people are like, think I'm nuts but we became really good friends through the course of writing the book because a lot of things happened to him and he was so honest with me and I mean he said to me look Ginger like you're so alone you're so isolated you're so angry and then you find this cohort of people who are like you and you think that you can get back at the world with them together in this way and I mean it makes sense to me it really makes sense well, so what there is then, there's, there's essentially victims on both sides of this. There is. Is what you're and, saying, just in yeah. different ways. And the, the other thing that really stood out to me, so another reason I really wanted to do this is like when I was doing all the research, you know, I read a, a couple of stories. You'll probably know both names, Charlotte Dawson and Leanne yeah. Morrison, yes. two people who both took their lives because of online trolling. And, you know, mine wasn't as extreme as anything like that. And and in the grand scheme of things, wasn't particularly that big. And, you know, have you know I, I will repeat, you know, I'm guilty myself of doing some trolling. But at the same time, 
you know, I recognise the early effects or early yeah. mental health effects, and you know. Just say it and, carried on and just just say I'd lost my sponsors and I'd been stuck in Uruguay and I didn't know how I was going to earn my money. You know, I, I saw the potential serious consequences to myself. Absolutely. And I mean, I mean, we need to be careful with suicide and I do talk about this in troll hunting as well. Like suicide is usually not caused by one factor. It's a, of course. It's like tributaries going into a river and so it's usually more than one thing. But I do really say that, predator trolling at that extreme level like what you're talking about what charlotte went through you know there's a lot there's a whole chapter on charlotte in my book like it is an extreme stressor and if you already have other stressors in your life financial relationship mental health if you already have a number of stuff a number of things going on it's very dangerous and i mean Mm -hmm. we know this we and the thing that really pisses me off is like plenty of kids in you know there's um a british kid who dies by suicide and it's related to online hatred in my book and there's lots of australian kids that have done the same like dolly everett but we always go on and on and on about oh the children the children the children they're so vulnerable on the internet yes they are and i'm not saying that but so are the adults like almost every dead person in my book is an adult so I mean, the good thing about the book, look, the book nearly destroyed me and I never, ever want to write another book. Maybe I will one day, but it is changing the conversation. I mean, I never... I never thought it would be read by anybody outside of Australia, really. <laughs> I mean, I wrote it in my pyjamas crying mm-hmm. in Canberra. I was drinking all night. I was so alcoholic by the end of it because I didn't understand it was going to be so violent and so damaging, you know, and I'd turn up at school pickup like looking homeless basically. Not that there's anything wrong with being homeless, but I did look very dishevelled and very in very poor form. And the parents at the school, I think, thought I didn't have a job and didn't, I don't know, they were shocked when the book came out that I'd actually been doing something. You should probably tell the backstory though, again, because I mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Because um, so, sto- like, it's an incredible story. It is. And, I mean, I was, before the interview with you, I've been listening in the car to the audio book of my book just to keep it on the top of my head because... You know, um, I wanted to be fresh and I was listening to that part again going, oh, my God, I can't believe this is like if this was made into a movie, you'd get the script writers being told like this is too complicated and convoluted. This this would never happen in real life. It's just too complicated. <laughs> like it's well, I, so do, do, unlikely. So Do you know what I just uh, watched the uh, on my flight on the way here? I watched the <sighs> – it's not the same story. Well, I don't know. You you might have a different view, but have you watched the new Netflix Don't Fuck With The Cats? No, but everyone's been tweeting me about it, so I've got to yeah. go on that. And everyone's been pinging me and going, saying, if you like this movie, you've got to read Ginger's book. So I've got yeah. to get on. I've got to, yeah. And people were saying I couldn't look away. I don't know how Ginger wrote her book after watching that movie. So um, I will. But so what happened was I'll just tell you in a nutshell So I worked for Australia's public broadcaster, the ABC, for a long time and I – so we have radio and TV very much like the BBC. So I was the drive presenter in Cairns, which is in far north Queensland, for a stint of a year. And because I've always been really worried about human rights, 
that is quite a conservative part of Australia and I wanted to tell the stories of people who are LGBTIQ+. And look, these were not current affair Fox News kind of stories. These were feature stories about these people's lives and the way that they get treated. And I did nine stories that were broadcast on the radio and posted on the internet. One of the stories was about this gay couple, Mark Newton and Peter Truong, who told me that they had had this child via surrogacy in Russia and that he was Mark's biological child. And so I spent a lot of time with that family in 2010. I went to their home. They had this beautiful home. He was a gorgeous little boy, like absolutely delightful, chatted to me. We played with his baby chickens, you know, and we just told this story about their lives and they had talked about how hard surrogacy was and how hard it was to get the child back into Australia and rah, rah. And so I, at that stage, was pregnant with my first child and I'm from Canberra. So eventually my husband and I came back to Canberra to have the baby towards the end of that year. And then I had the baby. I had a second baby. I was really pregnant with my second baby. And then I got the news. So we're talking probably around the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, that they were being investigated. Mark Newton and Peter Patron were being investigated as members of a paedophile ring, an international paedophile ring. And so by the middle of 2013, I was at home with my new baby, my second baby. It was boiling hot. And they were charged and arrested in the United States and convicted of the most horrendous crimes against this child. And it turned out that the child wasn't a biological relative of either of the men. He had been purchased from his Russian mother for 8000 US dollars. And he had been sexually abused by them from the time of being two weeks old. And they had shopped him around all over the globe to all these other pedophiles. And he was so indoctrinated, this kid, like he was taught from a tiny age never to say anything to anyone about it. So no one in the community knew anything about it. His teachers knew anything about it. The neighbours, nobody knew anything. The police... New Zealand police actually stumbled upon this by accident. It became a big international investigation. So, I mean, I think I knew, Peter, like once I heard sort of 2012, 2013 that they were being internationally investigated, I knew like I was like, God, I know with a sting like that there's got to be a lot of evidence. And by Mm -hmm. the time they were charged, I just, I mean, it's so hard to think about because I spent so much time with that kid and, I mean, I have a lot of grief for that child. I just I, I think about him all the time still. So, once- Just a quick question before you go on from that because one of the things I, I did want to ask you is do you know how he's doing now? I know and I've always wanted to start a trust fund for him actually and I think I'm going uh-huh. to um, – I'm talking with another journalist about going back and doing some more work on this. Look – I know that he is safe and I know that he has ongoing access to psychological care and he is with the family. I can't give you too much detail because the United States Postal Inspection Service who basically were in charge of this and the Indianapolis um, prosecutor has asked me not to. But, like, he's safe, he has 
ongoing access to uh, specialist psychological help and he is with the family of one of those guys. He's being brought up by them. I mean, it was difficult because the thing is he had no family really. His two fathers, in inverted commas, were horrendous pedophiles. His Russian mother had sold him. Like where would he go? It's just, I mean, I I always wish I could speak to him and talk to him and have a connection with him, you know. And I kind of always used to think these stupid things like if only I knew I just would have done anything. But anyway. Yeah, but you, you mean, can't beat yourself up about that. Oh, you can't. There's no way back. And, I mean, the thing is those guys had no criminal record at that time. There was no way. The police caught them accidentally. It wasn't like... They'd been chasing them for years and they knew what they were doing. They really didn't know. So, look, what happened once they were arrested, charged and convicted is like I just became target to this international hate campaign online. And so this quite prominent journalist in the United States, conservative guy, used to work at the Washington Times, so not the Washington Post, the Washington Times, which is a conservative newspaper there. So quite high stature, had loads, like thousands and thousands of Twitter followers. He writes a blog, thousands of blog followers. So Robert Stacey McCain is this guy's name. And he wrote a couple of blog posts about me and he was really inciting people to shame me. Um, And so there's a lot of research about this too, like that if you... If a conversation starts with incitement and hatred in trolling, it continues that way. So he included my Twitter handle in his posts and things like that and was really kind of saying shame her. And that's what his followers did. Like it just, I was on maternity leave with my second baby, like I said, and then I just this torrents of hate started pouring in and then there was so much hate. It's like what you described and your brain is almost overheating and exploding and you can't think straight and your heart's racing and you're full of adrenaline and, you know, people are saying these things like you're a paedophile enabler, you have to pay for what you've done, you're morally culpable for this. You know, they were telling the ABC sort of that I should lose my job and things like that. And so then I got a death threat and we were lying in bed late one night and I got this tweet saying your life is over. And, I mean, you never know with threats like that. I know now that sometimes they do come true. They are real. I didn't know at that time. Uh, And my my tweets were geolocated because I really wasn't techie. So you could actually pinpoint our house on Google Maps. And then at the same time we found this, my husband, my then husband, I've separated from him recently, probably in no small part due to a lot of this actually, but... Yeah, he found this photo of our family on a fascist website and it was this beautiful photo where I was pregnant with my second baby, my two-year-old daughter was on his shoulders and uh, there was all this vile commentary. It was on Iron March, this fascist, this defunct fascist website. But my mum's family fled the Holocaust and quite a few of them were gassed in the Holocaust. So the kind of two things together was just like pure terror, And I just, the thought that I remember, which I've written about in the book is like, we've got this tiny little house and my two little babies were asleep in the next room. I could hear them breathing, that slow kind of nighttime breathing. And I just thought like, did I just put their lives in danger because of my job as a journalist? 
So, yeah, that's where it started. I never, I mean, listen, I can't even scroll on my Mac. I can't really use my iPhone. Like I'm not a techie person and I was never interested in the internet particularly, but I was interested in the humans. That's the thing. And I think that this is a human story in the end, not an internet yep. story. It's, yeah, I mean, it was a strange one because when I was first hearing it, I kind of, I wasn't even thinking about you at the time. I was actually just thinking about the poor lad and feeling very sorry for him. And, and I, I, I hadn't fully come to the realisation of what you'd been through just because of hearing about that moment. And then, you know, then I started to hear the story about people coming at you. And then that was one of the things that kind of drove me to kind of self-reflect and want to apologise to a few people. Because I know even with some of my own behavior, whilst I'm, it might not have been like personal shaming people, I, I think I'd manipulated certain situations in a way and use them against people. And, and that's, that, that is, yeah, that's definitely wrong. I mean, it's hard because I don't, I think we've lost the ability to disagree. Like society is so polarized at the moment, what, a few generations ago would have been face-to-face interaction. It would have been someone going, hey, Peter, I read what you wrote about blah, blah. Have you thought about this or that? That It's now like, fuck you, Peter, you're a cunt and you're full of shit and I'm going to kill your kids. Like, yeah. I mean, I, 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 that's something that's really interesting to me. Like why have we lost the ability to disagree? And what is it about the particular tool that is the internet that makes us behave in this way. And I've actually thought about this a lot, about the idea of a tool and whether a tool can insist on being used in particular ways, and I think it can. So there's a thing that I think is really important that we talk about where you're talking about being quite aggressive online, Mm -hmm. and I actually think there's a troll in all of us, right? I think no one is... Uh, able to be absolved of that anyone that well let me throw something in there because the funny thing is once you said that and i've read that i actually realize trolling isn't actually just tied to online Uh, trolling can be the front page of a newspaper or or it can be a a magazine which shows it will show some actress who's on a beach and it'll have a photograph of her cellulite that itself yeah, is also trolling it is. and I kind of became aware it's everywhere. And sorry, just to throw one other thing in there, one of the interesting balances that I have is I get to see both sides based on what you just said. I get to live and experience the Twitter stuff where it's just wars and fuck you and you're wrong and he's wrong. And I also get to do, I've done over 200 interviews and not a single interview have I ever had has it ever resulted into an argument because it's face-to-face. Yeah, well, that's right. Like I was about to say, I'm sitting here across from you you seem like a lovely guy. We might not agree on everything, but we can have a civilized, complex discussion. And I think the point about the internet, you know, there's this academic term called the online disinhibition effect, and it is a mm-hmm. really useful concept. So don't let your eyes glo- glaze over because it's got this long, boring title. Basically, what the online disinhibition effect is, it means that we don't have a social contract on the internet. I can't see you, I can't look at your body language, I can't meet your eyes, I can't smile at you or nod or look bored or any of the things that we would do in real life to make that social contract happen. And so without those social cues that we have been conditioned to for millions of years, we have no social norms and there is no social contract and it's kind of gamified, right? So Mm -hmm. 
if I tell you to get fucked, I'm going to kill your kids. It doesn't matter. I can't see you. I'm not going to meet you at the local supermarket. You know, it has no consequence seemingly to me. And this is a really important idea and to recognize it in yourself. Because I mean, I would never, I've trolled people, you know, sometimes I've done it on purpose, but may, I mean, I never have predator trolled anyone. So I've never wanted to hurt anyone in real life, but I have definitely wound people up on purpose. And I think if most people are truthful, they would have as well. But knowing I deeply have imbibed the idea of the online disinhibition effect. And now I sit around thinking, would you actually, like when I'm like, oh, why is she saying that? I'm going to bite back and say this. I actually have a moment, a voice in my head going, would you actually say that in the supermarket to her? You probably wouldn't. So don't say it You'd now. probably walk away. Yeah. You know, or you'd say it in a much different way. So one of the things I, um, I've, I, like I said, I just wrote that big article about bystanders and how bystanders can intervene in cyber hate. And one of the things that I do online now is I actually enforce social norms the same as if I was at a party. So you know when someone's drunk at a party and they're being rude and obnoxious, you probably get a couple of their mates going, hey, listen, Peter, you're just being a bit foul to Sally. So do you want to just step outside for a minute and have a glass of water and think about going home? So I actually, like, I'll give you an example. There's a friend of mine who's a journalist. Her name is Lisa Miller. We have a big national um, TV program on in the mornings on the ABC. It's just like news breakfast. And Lisa was filling in on news breakfast and she was great. She was really good. But she'd get these tweets going, shut up, you bitch, talking shit on the TV for hours and just random old white men saying this stuff to her. And I was looking at this stuff just going, I'm just going to get in there and enforce some social norms. So I was experimenting really, but also trying to protect Lisa. So I just get in there and go, hi, Peter, just letting you know that in real life, Lisa is a really lovely and hardworking person. And I wonder if you met her in the supermarket, would you say that? And then like a few other people did the same and it stopped. He stopped it because basically we just enforce the social norm, which you would have offline. So there's a massive thing we can do to help which is actually be a great bystander one of them one of the tips is exactly what people did to you which is writing to you privately and saying hey mate so that actually also happened for me so two people in that week also got in touch with me one specifically who i consider a friend now and he'll know if he listens to this he'll know it is he just got in touch with me and he was like pete look I think the wheels are kind of coming off you online. And he was really good about it. He said, look, here's four examples of where I think you're kind of losing it and losing context and blah, 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 what's going on. And we had a conversation and, you know, we talked about the fact that, look, I've been traveling loads. I've done like 100 flights this year. I've been jet lagged. I've been stressed. I've not been self-caring and, you know, and came to that realization. But I actually had somebody step in and, and help me with that. Yeah, and I think it's really crucial to have bystanders watching out for each other and all mm-hmm. of us saying we want the kind of civil society that exists offline to exist online because the thing is the internet is this incredibly powerful tool that should be being used for the good of humanity. I'm not saying we all should agree, but what I am asking is like are we really willing 
to let the great potential of the internet to connect us all and have a voice and share knowledge and build community, are we really willing to let that go to the likes of the cesspits on 4chan and Reddit and like, you know, I mean, I sat for hours on incel chat rooms. So these are like involuntary celibates that believe women have abandoned them, that you can use sex, uh, violence to get sex from women, you can punch them, you can rape them, blah, blah, blah. Like these chat rooms would turn your stomach. I mean, is that what we really want? The, 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 the things that are rising in prominence and rising in power are these kinds of forums and they're having huge global impacts. Like Facebook has just been implicated in a genocide in Myanmar, not to mention the Internet Research Agency, you know, skewing a democratic election. I mean, these are really big things that we are standing by at the moment and letting happen. And I think we need to talk about, Peter, like where are the platforms and the social media companies in all of this? Because Right, this is, yeah, I think this is the area we might start to disagree because you know the two words I'm now going to say to you, which is often the defence is free speech. Yeah, but... Do you have free speech offline? You don't. Like if you couldn't sexually harass me or bully me at work or defame me, you know, we have laws that limit your free speech for the good of individuals but also for the good of society. I think it's hysteria the kind of way that people carry on about free speech absolute and absolutism online. Like society does not actually have free speech anywhere offline but for some reason we're hysterical about it online you know in a way that is not i need to throw some context in here so so the bitcoin world i'm in so i don't know how much you know about that but bitcoin is about monetary freedom it's about separating money and state you own your money you can't censor transactions you can't steal my money from me as a as a government and that idea comes with some consequences that, you know, terrorism, terrorists can use Bitcoin and, and pedophiles can use Bitcoin online to buy child porn and uh, bad state actors such as North Korea can use Bitcoin. But ultimately, that's what the price of freedom. There are a number of narratives that go alongside that. So the right to self-defense, you know, we have different gun laws in where we live, but I spent a lot of time in the States. You know, it's part of the constitution, the the right to bear arms and defend yeah. yourself. And free speech uh, is tra- part, part of their constitution too. But yeah. in actual fact, so, well, they have a lot of laws limiting free speech. So Yeah, but, but a lot of the people listening to this show are, are going to be the types of people who believe in complete financial freedom, the f- complete freedom to own any weapon of their choice. They want no government. They want complete freedom of speech. So just that's the context of what the audience is. So when we go down this route, there will be people listening. And when at any point we talk about restricting speech, there are going to be people who are going to say, no, all speech should be free. Yeah, no, I know that. But the thing is, all speech isn't actually free. Like you get defamation cases every day of the week in the United States. And that's because we understand that words can hurt your reputation and have an impact on you as a person and economically. So there is not a person in a democracy who has free speech. They bang on about it as if they do, but it's not true. Like if I was sexually harassed at work in Britain, in the United States, in Australia, I could take that to court. And if I proved it, you know, I would win. And so the thing is, 
you can't actually ever say what exactly what you want. You can claim that you want to and you can bang on about free speech absolutism, but nobody actually has that because you live in society. I mean, it's yeah. nonsense. It's an absolute well, nonsense. Like that This is what something I'm really wrestling with. So by the way, I'm also being sued in the High Court at the moment for defamation. Uh, yeah. by an Australian by an Australian actually well, okay so I... that person you yeah so somebody feels that you've infringed their rights so our rights as individuals are not absolute unless you want to go live on a desert island by yourself you can do what you like but if you're in society yeah. you don't actually have you don't have the right to absolute freedom in any way and where you're I mean, the thing is, I just, I think it's actually pretty basic. It's where your free speech hurts me. That's where it ends. Well, so this is where I really wrestle with this. And I am struggling with it because when I speak to somebody who's a free speech advocate, I understand and appreciate every point of view and kind of agree with it. It's a really well rationalized argument every single time most of the time because once you start to restrict speech it then becomes subjective it can become a slippery slope like for example people who've been banned from like i just read about a guy who's just been sentenced to 16 years in prison for burning an lgbt flag right okay so So that's that's like an that's like an extreme example but also you've got people who who have been say banned from twitter for stating biological fact joe rogan talks about this i can't remember the lady but she said you know a a man and a man and a woman as a woman biologically you know wear what you want dress what you want so and she got banned so i understand and support free speech where i really struggle with it is is people who, who say who want to go online they want to tell people to kill themselves sending them most abusive messages and go oh yeah but free speech and free speech right, is important. i really wrestle with that yeah so the thing is okay well there's so many things in what you've just said first of all why are these huge companies private companies that are making billions of dollars from our data who are not accountable to the public why are they the arbiters of free speech you know, they will, Facebook, for example, will take a photo down of a breastfeeding mother but not take down, you know, videos or or, or allow the Christchurch massacre to be broadcast live on Facebook Live, you know. Why why does that happen? So they are... Well, I think on that Christchurch one it happened, but I think, I I don't think they would have wanted that and I think if they could have instantly stopped it, they would have. No, wait a minute. I mean, I went to them and I told them that product wasn't safe. They knew how unsafe it was. They wanted that product on the market. So, you know, the thing is that those companies um, are far more interested in profit than they are in keeping anybody safe or sort of mirroring the social norms of society that's not what they're interested in i mean they've been bleeding about stopping cyber hate since 2006 if they wanted to they would they've got the best engineers in the world working for them they don't want to because it makes them money when there's huge cyber hate events on their platforms i mean there's a huge report from the pew center where they canvass like 1500 internet experts more than that from around the world all these and they're all saying that they're all saying the same thing The thing that is baffling to me is why are all these people who are banging on about free speech absolutism happy to put up with limits to their free speech in their real lives but for some reason on the internet they're not? I mean, to me those things are not different. 
I think yeah, I think some I think some of the people I talk to don't actually don't see a difference. So the the the, the kind of communities I've been mixing with in the Bitcoin, they don't they don't see a difference. And, and again, that's why I regulate it. Be- sorry, that's why I uh, struggle with it because but any thought no, of regulating speech scares me. Yeah. But at the same time, I at the, I, I also hate the fact there are people out there who can drive people to misery, is, sadness. Yeah, but the thing is, no one would say to me in like we said in the supermarket. I'm going to cut your uterus out and kill your children. They wouldn't because the police would come and arrest them, but they do mm-hmm. on the internet. And to me, there's no difference. I think no, I agree that, with you. I think that if speech can harm you, and the thing is there is decades of evidence, decades and decades of academic research to show that dehumanising speech causes violence like the Holocaust, like the Rwandan genocide. So it's absolute garbage when free speech absolutists say words on the internet never harmed anyone. Yes, they did. They incited the Charlottesville riots and Heather Hoyer is dead. Yes, they did. Well, yeah, and, they and incited- Rwanda was a great example because yeah. that was brought to me by a friend of mine. He said, because it was uh, radio, television, Libra, DeMille's, Collins, I'm kind of, basically RTLM was the random radio station which highly contributed to that massacre. That's right. And so with um, the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, the United States Nations just implicated Facebook in that genocide. So there's a direct link between online hatred and offline hatred, hatred that is whipped up and uh, propagated and proliferates and real-life violence. So, I mean, if we can all agree that we don't want something like the Christchurch massacre to happen again, then we have to also agree that at some point speech can be harmful and it should be limited in some ways. I mean, we're not talking about stopping freedom of expression. Like every democracy, you know, democracies are of better quality and lesser quality. They're not all the same and, you know, they're complex and different in every society. But basically in most democratic countries you can more or less say what you want unless you harm somebody else. And, I mean... I just don't want a society where young white men (laughs) can force other... I mean, this is the irony as well. Like, I had a huge argument with Weave about this. You know, Weave is probably the world's most notorious troll. And I was saying, the things that you do terrorise other groups and other people, victims that you choose, who are usually marginalised, to the point where their liberties are taken away. They don't have freedom of expression. They don't even want to leave the house, some of the people who, you know, they're so scared, some of the victims of the daily uh, stormer troll army, and they should be, you know. Aren't you taking away their freedoms? He was absolutely livid. He told me to get off the internet, you know. And I'm like, so okay, so I can't use the tool. <laughs> I, I don't have the right to use the tool. Like, it. I just, I don't think those arguments are genuine. I think they're yeah, a type well, of trolling, actually. Well, they are, but you're dealing with a person who is a sadist, so they get pleasure from upsetting someone. They're a narcissist, so they love the attention. And they're psychopathic, so they can't a- empathise with what's happening to somebody else. So that's one of the things I've learned is... You, 
you can talk to some people, but there are some trolls. You can't rationalize with them. You can give them truth and facts. They don't care. You can explain the consequence to you as a human. They don't care. So it's almost pointless exercise. But isn't it interesting that with my interview with Weave, who's like one of the world's sort of most outspoken free speech absolutists, that when I really put these hard questions to him and was really asking him about taking away other people's liberties, you know, he ended up just shouting abuse that I was a fucking kike and essentially shouting so loudly and so angrily that I wasn't able to speak. So, you know, that's actually right there in a nutshell the way that I see free speech absolutism operating. It's actually not about giving everybody a voice and making sure everybody has freedom of expression. It's about people who have particular bigotries and particular worldviews wanting to dominate and spread that hatred in a way that suits them and shut other marginalised voices down and it's not a kind of society that I want to live in. So so what, what do you think the answer is then? I don't think there's one answer. I think it's uh-huh. a really complicated situation. We, each of us, need to understand that we have a role to play online and a lot of the things we've been talking about today, like understanding the online disinhibition effect, understanding when you're being more aggressive, wanting to build stronger communities, giving other people a voice, all those things is important, having psychological armour, you know, being a good bystander, like I've developed techniques whereby bystanders can intervene and stop cyber hate on behalf of other people kind of en masse and it's amazing. It's like a reverse trolling. So there's a lot that we can do as individuals but I am also really hesitant to go it's up to the victims, it's up to individuals. My broad brushstroke view is that The mechanisms that keep us safe offline have to exist online and at the moment that they don't. So law enforcement needs to be a lot better. Oftentimes the laws are really good. I just read all the British laws the other day and the advice that British Parliament gives about the current laws. They're not new laws. They're laws about hatred and inciting harm and things. The police don't understand them. Like police around the world are failing at this. So if you went to the police in the situation you were in the other day where someone was genuinely threatening you, they would say, stay off the internet, love. I guarantee you they would. Well, they that's not in every scenario because people in the UK have been uh, prosecuted for. Yeah, I mean, listen, you might get you might get one of the three police in Britain that know how to deal with it and investigate it and have the resources and the skills, the technical skills to do it. You might, great. But most people don't. Um, and it's the same around the world. It's Although UK Metropolitan Police has got an online sort of hatred trolling task force, so that's quite revolutionary. And in Colombia they're doing an amazing job at this. They've got a whole cyber hate sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, team, but it's, it's all different kinds of cyber hate and they're all in the same building. I think it's called C5. So there are some countries that are doing better, but it's glacial, you know. So... Police around the world need to be resourced and trained to deal with this and to understand how serious the crimes are that are linked to this stuff. But also the social media companies just are missing in action. Like I don't understand why we have let these monolithic companies 
Like Facebook and Twitter are bigger, they have more users than the populations of India and China put together. They pay almost no tax. They make billions of dollars from our data. Why are we letting them create a community space where people are coming to such harm? And we believe them. We just believe them. They keep saying we're going to fix it and they never do. Like governments have to regulate this stuff. Otherwise, you know, I'm just waiting for the next massacre. Like, Yeah, so again, uh, uh, what I will say in prep for the people who will listen to this who are my audience, a lot, there's going to be a lot who will really disagree with this. Yeah, I, I wrestle don't with care. it. Yeah. yeah listen, no, I'm just saying that I mean, it's something I'm wrestling with myself. Listen, if you go buy a car, what's in the car? Seatbelts, airbags, cars are designed to be safe and keep you from harm. I'm not saying people never get killed in cars, they do. But basically what we did around the world to reduce trauma on the roads is we made better roads, we created more public safety awareness, we put more police on the roads, we created better laws and we made better cars. I mean, to me, Facebook and these things are like, it's like we've got this company that's putting unsafe cars on the roads and we don't care. I just, well, perhaps, I find it amazing. Pro- but I think where the difference of opinion will be here is that the belief that the government are the best people to 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 regulate this well, or to make you know, a change. Well, yeah. well, it's been over a decade and what are they doing? Nothing. Fuck all. They're not doing anything, you know? And you're going to read about another suicide in in a minute. You know what I mean? Like uh, these stories, like that story I sent you about the American journalist who was epileptic and got sent a tweet that was designed to give him a seizure. Like that's ridiculous that a platform like Twitter gets away with publishing something like that. I mean, the thing is they've been saying they're not publishers forever because it doesn't suit them, but in fact they are publishers, you know. So, yeah, this is, this is the area I'm, I am really wrestling with now because I've gone down like this rabbit hole of libertarianism, like wanting to take powers away from the state, but at the same time wrestling with the, these issues and I don't know the answer. So, uh, I mean, the thing is... There's this sort of hysteria about taking freedoms away, but most of us function in daily life with the freedoms that we have in a perfectly fine capacity. So I just think it's hysteria about censorship that... Yeah, it's another rabbit hole you and I could spend another hour on. (laughs) We could. No, we could. But, I mean, I just am a very practical person. Like... I want a free, equal and fair society, but I also refuse, I want a pluralistic society too, where people that are in marginalised groups can speak and still do have rights. And at the moment, the internet is not that place. You know, people that should be sharing their views and making society more rich and interesting are being driven off those platforms. So Mm. whatever we're doing right now isn't working. All right. Well, there's been a lot here. It's uh, and thank you so much for doing this because I know you get a lot of requests. I do. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, I never. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit. Look, it shocks me more than anything. The weirdest thing is like seeing you yourself quoted in a different language. Like I've been quoted recently in Dutch and in Norwegian, and I'm like, cool. That's a nice picture. I wonder what this article says. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't even know if I'm being misquoted, you know. I mean, I went to Norway recently and it was crazy. I just got mobbed by the media there because a lot of the white supremacists, their hero is Anders Breivik, and someone tried to cop, you know, someone tried to copy the Christchurch killing just a few weeks ago just outside Oslo. So, yeah, I wasn't expecting that when I went there. Anyway. Well, well, I know you get a lot of requests from all around, the, all over the world, and I know you don't accept them all. So some, <laughs> somehow something I said got through and you agreed to do this. So I, I really do appreciate it. And thank you again for your book. Um, that was very helpful to me and also your writing. Thank I do you. wish you the best of luck continuing this. I've got a feeling this isn't going to be the last time we're going to talk. Thank you. Um, I'd love to talk to but, you again. But I, I wish you the best with it. But please do, just for everyone listening, if they want to find out more, tell them where to find you, your work, the book, everything. Um, you, you deserve a little spot in the limelight here to oh, advertise thank what you. you're doing. Um, so I'm on Twitter and I'm mad on Twitter. So it's just at Ginger Gorman, G-I-N-G-E-R-G-O-R-M-A-N. And my book is called Troll Hunting. You can find it anywhere. It's in the UK, it's in the US, it's in Australia. So yeah, you can find me. Well, I will share that all out in the show notes and uh, yeah, I'll let you know when this is coming out. I haven't actually decided which show to go out on. It's My Bitcoin show is a Bitcoin show, right? And very occasionally I'll, I'll do something that where we don't talk about Bitcoin. I did a gun uh, show recently and you know I've talked to adult uh, performers and things like that. It's got a bigger audience, so I'm tempted to put out that. But also my other show, Defiance, it fills in line with that. I haven't actually decided. I'm, I might even ask uh, people on Twitter what they think. But appreciate your time. No, and, lovely uh, to and, talk to you. And anything I can do for you in the future you let me know thank you thank you for listening to defiance i hope you enjoyed this interview with ginger as someone who's both trolled and been subjected to a large amount of online trolling abuse and attempts to cancel this was a really interesting topic personally sitting in communities which can often become toxic and being aware of the devastating impact that trolling can have on people i felt this was an important conversation to have So while Ginger and I did not agree on everything, I really do appreciate her taking the time to come on the show and talk about this. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do have any questions about the show, you can reach out to me. My email address is peter at defiance.news. Also, I need to say a big thanks to my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com. Also, if you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. Please leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show, follow the show on social media, or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about the show, then please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news. 